very few things in life are easier to do than to separate our lives from the profound theology of Scripture, and this is true when it comes to marriage. And yet this is exactly what Paul works so hard against in the book of Ephesians. There we find that marriage is profoundly theological because marriage, Christian marriage, our marriages, have been caught up into the cosmos-sized work of Christ. And if there's anything the book of Ephesians will never let us get away with doing, it is the emptying out of our marriages of theological significance. Which is to say, merely addressing a husband's role in headship and a wife's role in submission is not enough. Gospel theology must shape the why and the how as we live out those roles in our marriages. We can look at these theological implications for marriage from various perspectives, but in this Authors on the Line podcast, we connect with Bible scholar Dr. G.K. Beale to address this from a more technical biblical angle. And Dr. Beale serves as professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. His research on Ephesians has shed much light on how Christian marriage is shaped by the finished work of Christ in his inauguration of the new creation. The patient reader will find this material near the end of his magnum opus, A New Testament Biblical Theology, which was published by Baker Academic in 2011. There, Dr. Beale offers one pregnant summary statement when he writes, quote, As husbands unconditionally love their wives and as wives respond to this love in a faithful manner, they are actors on a redemptive historical stage performing a play before the onlooking audience of the world, end quote. We will eventually arrive at that point in this podcast, but I first asked Dr. Beale to offer us a summary of the book of Ephesians, and particularly the cosmic-altering work of Christ within the book. And in the first half of this podcast, that's what he will do. And if you can listen with an open Bible, that would be best. What's important to hear in this summary are all the connecting points between Christ's cosmic work in his death and resurrection, and how all of that work relates to marriage. As Dr. Beale will say in the end, this is mind-blowing. And it is mind-blowing theology, and it requires that we open our Bibles and take a closer look at the interconnected theology in Ephesians. Here's Dr. Beale. Well, this is a exceedingly brief uh, thumbnail sketch, but um, you know, Ephesians 1:10 says that uh, Christ's coming was something that inaugurated uh, an administration. It says suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon earth. Now, what is that summing up? In Greek, uh, it is uh, the word for head or heading up. And it is related later at the end of the chapter uh, to Christ's work, where it talks in, in verse 20 about him being raised from the dead. Verse 21, far above all rule, and then in verse 22, it says he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head, kephale in Greek, over all things to the church. Now there's debate about whether that word head there is related to the verb anakephaleiao, or head up or sum up in verse 10. Uh, I think it probably is related, but certainly it's at least related by pun. And there's an interpretative expansion there. What does it mean that Christ came to sum up and head up? all things uh, in the heavens and on the earth. Um, it's not a reference only to the future. It's a reference to something that's been inaugurated, and it's been inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, his resurrection launched him into uh, a, a kingly authority. Uh, as verse 22 says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, that's going to be a very important passage here uh, when we uh, go to chapter 5 with regard to marriage 
in a few minutes. But one of the key things in Ephesians, uh, a key word is mystery. It's mentioned in chapter 1 early on. It doesn't really define it. But in chapter 3, Paul talks about, in verse 4, the insight he has into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he calls this a mystery again in verse 9. Well, what's mysterious about uh, the Gentiles being saved along with Jews? Because that was always prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, some would say, well, it's mysterious because it was never understood that Gentiles would become true Israel. Um, and I think that's what verse um, 6 is saying, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promises in Christ. So I, they're on the same footing with Israelites, and I, I think it's a statement about true Israel. But I don't think that that's the essence of the mystery. Um, I mean, I think ultimately... Uh, uh, the reason that the section on Gentiles has come here is because uh, Christ, uh, way back in 110, remember, he, he's come to sum up, to head up all things in the heavens and on the earth. And that passage uh, is introduced in verse 10 of chapter 1. Uh, it refers, that he's come for an administration or a, a, a management. In fact, uh, it's a household management, and uh, the, the, the word there is oikonomia, where we get the word economy, how you manage the affairs of buying and selling, etc. But uh, the idea ultimately is we're going to see in a moment that Christ is a last Adam figure. The first Adam was to keep the furniture of the first garden, which I believe was the first sanctuary, uh, he was to keep it all uh, clean, all in order, but he allowed a, a slimy, demonic serpent to come in. And all the furniture, everything in that first sanctuary was turned over. And as a result, all those who were descended from Adam, uh, um, their lives are mixed up. They are fragmented. And so when it says that Christ came in 110 to be a household manager and to sum up, that is to head up all things, he has come to head up the house and, and the affairs of the cosmic house in the way Adam should have. Adam didn't do it. The last Adam has come. He's begun to do it significantly in his first coming. He'll complete it in his second coming. But the first reason that we get this mention of Gentiles here is because Christ has come to heal the fractures among humanity. And one of the greatest examples of that fracture in the ancient world was Jew and Gentile. Uh, they didn't have anything to do with one another. And he has come to heal that. Now, I'm not going to go into any more about that mystery there. I do in a book I'm about to come out uh, with with a former student of mine um, named Ben Glad with IVP on uh, a biblical theology of mystery in the New Testament. But I think it would sidetrack us to go further. But the point is, the reason that... Um, Christ has come is to put the cosmic house back in order as a household manager, uh, as the head of the house. And uh, the first thing, first effect is that he is um, bringing Jew and Gentile, he's bringing fragmented humanity back together again. Now, the next time that mystery is used 
is in Ephesians 5. Now we're going to look at that, but we're going to uh, back up a few verses earlier. In Ephesians 5, verse 30, it says we're members of Christ's body. In verse 31, for this cause, he quotes Genesis 2:24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In verse 32, he says this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. <clears throat> what is the mystery there? There's a lot of debate about that. Um, but I, but I want to just back up to show the connections of the section on marriage all the way back to chapter 1 and the end of it where Christ is ruling. Notice in verse 22 where it begins, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the kephale of the wife, as Christ also is the kephale, that is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, it says that wives will be subject to their husbands, carrying over that verb subject from verse 21, and then head is used. Well, the only other place in all of Paul and in all of the New Testament where head is used with be subject to is in Ephesians 1. In verse 22, where it, remember it says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, I didn't mention, but now it's appropriate. That, that verse, in verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet, is an illusion. It's a reference to Psalm 8-6, which is the most famous ideal Adam psalm in all of the Bible. And it says what the ideal Adam should have done, and really pointing to what the last end-time Adam would do. He would rule. All things would be put in subjection under his feet. So this is a reference that Christ at the right hand of God, as a result of his resurrection, is the end-time Adam. He's finally begun to do what the first Adam should have, so that when we come to chapter 5 again, and we find that language about submission and headship, it should immediately conjure up for us chapter 1, that we're, we're dealing here with Adam terminology, last Adam terminology. And so uh, in verse 23, when it says the husband's head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, so that the church is also subject to him, he is the head. Now, I'm not going to talk about the nature of the wife's submission here, because I think that will become clearer as we go obviously a very debated thing. Then the majority of the um, message about marriage is given to the husbands. Um, because I actually think it's harder to carry out. Perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, that, that's very debatable, especially if you talk to my wife. But there, well, why so much given? I mean, we have, uh, how many verses? We have um, um, really two verses for the wives, and then a comment in that regard in, in verse 23, where it says, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. So again, you get some subjection there and headship with regard to Christ. Then the husbands are told, first of all, verses 25 to 27, to love their wives as Christ, love the church. That is an unconditional sacrificial commitment. And the purpose of it, ultimately, is to sacrifice, to, to sanctify the wife. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. And um, in verse 27, that uh, she should be holy and blameless. I don't think this is just the church here, but also the wife. Uh, and 
but besides unconditional commitment, then the husbands are told in verse 28 to love their own wives as their own bodies. He loves his own wife, loves himself. And I remember John Piper at one point talking about this verse, and he said it's probably a development and a reflection of Jesus' own statement to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is highly significant. Why? Our mate, our wife in this case, is our best friend and our closest neighbor. They're the first ones to love. And, um, but as the text goes on, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as also Christ does the body, because we're members of his body. So husbands and wife are a unity, so that if you are going to do something that is not the best thing for your wife, well, it's like taking a hammer and hitting your hand with it. Uh, it's going to hurt you. Now, then this issues into the statement that the reason husbands and wives are one is because uh, we're members of Christ's body, and the church is one with Christ. And then we get the quotation from Genesis 2.24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And then we get the statement, verse 32, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So this mystery about marriage Paul seems to go beyond husband and wife at this point and said that this, this mystery about marriage is really about Christ and the church. Now, one of, one of the things that we can say about mystery at this point is that whenever you find it in the New Testament, um, it is uh, usually related to introducing or concluding or in the midst of references to the Old Testament. And usually it's indicating a beginning fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But this verse from Genesis 2.24 doesn't seem like a prophecy. For this cause a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, and so probably we should put this in the category of typology. This relationship between Adam and Eve was one that was intended to foreshadow the relationship between Christ and the church. As you remember, in Genesis 2.23, it focused on the unity of Adam and Eve. And, and then verse 24 summarizes that relationship. The man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But Paul says again, that's not primarily the first focal point. It's not husband and wife. It's Christ and the church. And here's the point that, that I would want to make, that... I mean, there's some who believe. There's a lot of debate about whether wives should uh, be in this uh, submissive or respectful relationship to the husband, that this is really first century ethics and no longer applies. But I think that, uh, and, and by the way, I would say here that the husband's unconditional commitment, it's not, the headship is not a, a leading by a berating and, 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 and using uh, an authoritative position in any way one wants. It is, it is a headship of service and of sacrifice. And I would contend that if husbands did that, wives would have no problem respecting the decisions of their husbands. In fact, the word for fear is used of the wife with regard to the husband. Uh, at the end, in 30, verse 33, uh, let the wife see to it that she respect her husband or fear him. And I, I, I think that this is a, an important supplement to the notion of what submission is all about. It's a, it's a, it's a respect, a, a, a trust, 
in. And so, well, what's the point here that Paul says Genesis 2.24 is not first about husband and wife, but Christ and the church? Well, the point is this, that marriage between a man and a woman is not a goal or an end in itself. Yes, marriage is for procreation, and it's wonderful. It's, it's for uh, enjoying one another, both on the physical and the emotional uh, uh, aspects of things. And certainly marriage is for sanctification. I think one of the greatest reasons for marriage, however, is what Paul is saying here, that the couple, the husband and wife, are on what we will call a redemptive historical stage. And the world is watching. And as the husband initiates a sacrificial, unconditional, loving commitment to the wife, and as the wife then responds in great respect and trust to the husband's initiation, what that is is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of Christ who came from heaven. Uh, he left his Father in heaven. He came, gave himself for his people, rose again, and they became part of his body. Um, so he gave himself. What did the church do? Those who become part of his body, they trust in him. They submit to him. They respect him. And this is why you can't say that that, that, that either the ethic of respecting slash trusting slash submission is cultural. It's transcultural. Why? Because the gospel is transcultural. It's not just for first century. The gospel, if the gospel is transcultural, then the redemptive historical play acted out by husband and wife is transcultural until the final consummation. And so I think that uh, the upshot of what I've been saying is, number one, why did Christ come? to heal fragmented humanity. Black and white, different ethnicities that are uh, Arab and Jew, uh, Gentile and Jew in the first century, but also he came to heal the fractures in marriage. And in fact, chapter uh, 6 goes on to talk about children, uh, fractures between the parent-child relationship, the fractures then between the slave-master relationship, what I would call today, I'm, I'm not going to give all the reasons for it, the employer-employee relationship. All of these are areas that, that have huge fractures. Christ came to put them back together again. And as we, as husbands, for those of us who are married, um, we need to carry out uh, the ethic that Paul gives us here of unconditional sacrifice and of respect and trust on the wife's part, and when that happens, God will often use it as a tool of the gospel itself to bring people to him. We're acting out the gospel. It's one of the few things that we have where the gospel is acted out. And of course, we have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism. These are areas through the explanation of uh, the um, uh, uh, minister who's uh, conducting these uh, sacraments to explain these object lessons, but marriage is an object lesson. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying marriage is a sacrament, but uh, I am saying it's, it's an object, object lesson. It seems to me that in the flow of Ephesians, as Paul presents Christ in his cosmic shaping work as the, the second Adam, as the household manager, 
you, you mentioned that earlier. And, and one reason he came to die and to be raised from the dead was to restore God's original design for marriage. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, because Genesis 2.24 is pre-fall. Now, it's still applied post-fall, but it couldn't be carried out very well. If we, you, know, you can only say what would have happened if Adam had not fallen. Well, there would have been a lot of escalated blessings. Um, so, you know, the serpent would have been taken care of. Uh, I think probably Adam should have taken care of the serpent. And, um, but a lot of escalated blessings, and one of the blessings would, be, would have been unity in marriage. But that, even in itself, according to Paul, would have pointed to unity between humanity and God, even then. And this is why it already pointed forward, even before the fall, to um, human marriage in, in Christ. So yeah, this is, a, this is why I included it, because my book is a, a lot of it's about new creation. So marriage is a new creational institution for the Christian. For those, you know, who, uh, I mean, Christ says that divorce, the certificate of divorce was given because of the hardness of your heart. It's part of an old fallen system. So um, in the new creational system, divorce becomes much, much more problematic. Yes, that's a fascinating connection. And I want to change gears a little bit. I mean, if you were talking with a Christian wife who, let's say she has a godly husband, uh, would you feel comfortable in explaining to her her role in marriage, not necessarily as a response to her husband, but as a response to what Christ has accomplished in the cosmos and in her aligning her life under what Christ and his lordship now calls for in her marriage? Yes, definitely, because that's the, that, that's the role of the husband. He's a Christ figure. And... Um, so that, um, um, you know, when she's responding to him, ultimately, you know, she knows that she is acting out her own response to the gospel and acting out how others should respond to Christ. So that should always be kept in mind. So that one's covenantal relationship, not only to one another as husband and wife, but to Christ, uh, should always be kept in mind. And, and what that means is... and. I run over my over the years. I've found that people define love as emotional. I just don't. You, you've heard it said, "I don't love him anymore," or "I don't love her anymore." But love ultimately, certainly, it has feelings. But ultimately, it's loyalty that then becoming inextricably linked to feelings that follow. But it's loyalty to a covenant relationship. So we, I don't always feel like reading my Bible in the morning or praying, but try to. Why? Because I believe Christ has commanded me to do that and that there's great reward in it and that I'll come to know him better even if I don't feel like doing it. So a wife may not feel like um, loving her husband uh, emotionally, but if she carries out this redemptive historical act, it is covenant loyalty. Now others will say, oh, that's hypocrisy. What could be worse? And when you don't emotionally love someone, you act like you love them. Oh, that, that's the world's view. You see, that's hypocrisy for the world. But for the Christian faith, that's faithfulness. And I believe that when feelings do leave, often for the husband and wife, if they continue to be faithful to this redemptive historical role we talked about in Ephesians 5, that feelings will be re-engendered, uh, new creational feelings through the Spirit, 
I think will be re-engendered. Um, um, that's what I think and pray would, would happen. All right, here's one final follow-up question, Dr. Beal, and this is just a sort of a summary of your summary, and it may cover some of the previous ground, but if you were in a couple's living room and they asked you, you know, Dr. Beal, why is it important for us to understand the cosmic shaping work of Christ? What difference will it make in our home? How would you summarize all of this? How would you pastorally motivate this couple to pursue harmony and love and to pursue their unique roles within their marriage? Well, I I would just condense what I've said and say that the Christ came to put the Humpty Dumpty of the cosmos back together again. And that when we allow um, alienation, whether between races or whether between people, friends, employees, employers, children, parents, or husband and wife, what that shows is that this fragmentation uh, is still here in this relationship, and this relationship is not showing the way it should, the restorative, unifying work of Jesus Christ. Now, if there's no evidence of that restoring work, then the people need to say, do I really know the Lord? And they need to come to know the Lord, who, through the Spirit, gives the power to begin to do these things. But every time, in fact, I I can't go into it, but uh, I'm going to write a commentary in Ephesians, but in Ephesians 3, I'll give you the, my, my result and the upshot of my study of Ephesians 3 when it says uh, about that message between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 3, verse 9, that uh, Paul's ministry was to bring to light what is the administration, that is the management of the mystery, that is bringing Jew and Gentile together, managing them into a unity. That mystery which uh, for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, and it says, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. I want to read that again. Paul has revealed this mystery about restorative unity in Jew and Gentile. Why? In order that. Now, this is the main point now. What's the purpose of revealing this mystery? In order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities. Those rulers and authorities are not good rulers and authorities. They're evil rulers and authorities. How do we know that? From chapter 6 and verse 10, where uh, the devil has his rulers and authorities at work. And these rulers and authorities in chapter 1, Christ has been exalted over them. And so these are evil rulers and authorities. Why does Paul make the point here that this mystery and the wisdom of God about how Jew and Gentile can be unified again is proclaimed and the goal is to proclaim it to the evil rulers and authorities. What? Why? Is this just angels long to look into these things? No. It is because Satan and his evil rulers and authorities, he was the main agent. In fact, Judaism called Satan the man of separation. And that was one of his main works, and that's the works of, of, of his demons. Whenever we exhibit separation between one another, then you can picture a stadium. Good angels on one side, the evil angels on the other. We're, we're on the playing field. And whenever there's separation between us, the black pennants go up and the evil authorities go, yeah, yeah maybe we're not really defeated. But when we increasingly, not perfectly, progressively, not perfectly, show restoration, for example, in the marriage relationship, then the good angels are waving their white pennants and they're saying, yeah. This, what is this? It shows Satan 
and his demons have been defeated. And that's what restoration in all these relationships, including marriage, indicates. It's a, it's a mind-blowing, it's a powerful statement in that passage by Paul. We show the victory of Christ in our victory in our relationships. Yes, that is mind-blowing. Uh, may the Lord press this cosmic vision of the work of Christ into our marriages and into our homes. Dr. Beale, thank you for that summary. And for more on how Dr. Beale applies the cosmic work of Christ to marriage, see his book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, published by Baker Academic in 2011, and specifically note pages 880 to 884 on this topic. Along similar lines to what we talked about here in this podcast, I have attempted to flesh out these and many other related implications in an article titled Marriage in the Cosmic Plan of God. The article was published in the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in the Fall issue 2012, and you can find the article by searching for the title Marriage in the Cosmic Plan of God at DesiringGod.org. There you will find the blog post, and in that blog post you'll find a download link for the article. Thank you for listening to this first Authors on the Line podcast of 2013. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in iTunes or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.